This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. Selling your car? Visit Carvana and enter your license plate or VIN. Answer a few quick questions and you can get a real offer in seconds. When you finalize your offer, Carvana will pick it up so you never have to leave the comfort of home. Visit Carvana.com or download the app. Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and it's time for the News Roundup. This week served up some big stories, financial woes for American banks, a court case with major implications for reproductive rights, and a possible indictment for the former president. It was a confidential settlement. So is it the truth? Of course it's not the truth. Was he supposed to tell the truth? He would be in violation of the agreement if he told the truth. So by him doing that, he was abiding by not only his rights, but Stormy Daniels' rights. We'll do our best to break that down along with the rest of the week's news. Joining us for the next hour, Ron Elving. He's a senior editor and correspondent for NPR. Ron, welcome back. Good to be with you. And with me in studio, Cheryl Gay Stolberg. She covers the intersection of health, policy, and politics for the New York Times. Always great to have you, Cheryl. Great to be here, Jim. And back once again, Todd Zwillick. He's host of Vice's Breaking the Vote series. Hi, Todd. Hi, Jen. So, okay, let's start with the banks. There's a lot going on. Last Friday, Silicon Valley Bank became the biggest American bank to fail since Washington Mutual collapsed in 2008 at the height of the global financial crisis. It spooked markets and the Biden administration. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. That was President Joe Biden speaking on Monday. Ron, why did SVB and New York Bank based uh, based bank rather signature fail? Bad bets and bad policy within the bank. Uh, a failure to foresee that interest rates would rise and rise as fast as they did. And that caused the the bank president and some of his top officials to stock up and, and to an extraordinary degree on long-term federal debt, long-term treasury bonds. And while that's a safe investment in some respects, it's also guaranteed to return a relatively small amount of investment over a longer period of time. So when business conditions started to stress some of the venture capital kinds of high-tech enterprises that they were financing, uh, and they needed more cash, they couldn't raise it with their reserves. And eventually, they were in increasing amounts of trouble. And as word got out about that, and some big hedge funds pulled out the money that they had there, there was a social media-driven run on the bank, a kind of latter-day version of what we saw in the 1930s. And huge amounts, $42 billion in a single day, were withdrawn from the bank, at which point, well, under that kind of assault, hard to imagine how any bank could survive. And so given all that set of circumstances, it was necessary for the government to close them. Talk quickly turned to the changes made to the Great Recession era Dodd-Frank Act in 2018. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren said she warned Congress at the time that it was making a big mistake. If Congress and the Federal Reserve had not rolled back key provisions of Dodd-Frank, these banks would have been subject to stronger liquidity and capital requirements to help withstand financial shocks. 
These threats should never have been allowed to materialize. And now we must prevent them from occurring again. Now, on Wednesday, Republican Senator Joe Kennedy from Louisiana said changes to Dodd-Frank had nothing to do with the bank's demise. There's been a lot of talk about Silicon Valley Bank wasn't being regulated because of a bill passed back in 2018 or 2019. That's not true. Silicon Valley Bank was heavily regulated. It was subject to stress testing. It was subject to liquidity stress testing. All the regulators had to do was read the reports. Where were the regulators? Now, Todd, arguably this didn't come out of the blue. The private sector and others started asking questions about FVB's financial position last year. So what questions does this raise for the Fed chair and for regulators? Well, Elizabeth Warren's point there, the rollback of Dodd-Frank regulations, uh, is an important one. SVP is in a sweet spot of its assets uh, between I think $50 billion and $200 billion. It's a mid-sized bank, small to mid-sized bank. And under the old Dodd-Frank regime, that bank would have been subject to more stringent, as she said, liquidity requirements, asset requirements. That basically means the amount of money a bank has to keep on hand, keep available, can't be buried in, as Ron said, long-term treasuries where it's not available, where if people come for their money, you can pay them the way a bank is supposed to do. Um, when that part of the regulation was rolled back, SVP was not subject to those liquidity requirements. So all of the retrospective arguing about whether the whether the bank was regulated or not, of course the bank was regulated. It's not like it was completely the Wild West, but it probably wasn't regulated in the way that would have protected this particular problem. That's Liz Warren's point there. Um, Liz Warren wants to bring back that level of regulation to a bank like SVP. Look, she's not going to get it. There, It just isn't consensus in Congress over going back to some of the provisions of Dodd-Frank to regulate these banks. Um, Chuck Schumer this week didn't sign on to Elizabeth Warren's call to get that level of regulation from Dodd-Frank back again. Um, he very specifically did not endorse it but said he wants to go for some form of bipartisan return to banking regulation. I I can't completely see the future on this. I think the chances of that are very, very unlikely, and it's going to be up to the Fed, uh, who's under a great deal of scrutiny now uh, for years and years of basically sugar-high, cotton candy, free money in the economy. 2008 in the banking rescue, the COVID rescue and avoiding a depression after COVID may be necessary to inject trillions of dollars into the economy, but nevertheless, that's what they did. And now back to a free money scenario of a sort um, with with a different kind of bailout for SVP and some of the banking collapses that happened last week. So um, most of the responsibility in the scrutiny now appears to be on the Fed, and um, they are they have the economy on a sugar high. We all know it. And the foundation, that makes the foundation weak. Well, we should be clear. The Biden administration has said that this bailout was for depositors, not for bank executives. But it does raise this question, Cheryl, about accountability and and what accountability looks like in this case. What are we hearing right now? Well, so what accountability looks like is two ongoing investigations into Silicon Valley Bank. The SEC is investigating, and so is the Department of Justice. And in particular, the SEC is looking at trades, stock sales that um, the CEO and the CFO of the bank made in the weeks before it failed. And they're interested in knowing uh, whether or not those bankers saw this coming. And, you know, was it, in effect, insider trading? Um, they're also interested in knowing whether or not the bank disclosed all the relevant facts that it had to shareholders. Did it see 
this coming. We don't know what's going to come out of those investigations. If the SEC acts, it would be a civil um, penalty. If the Department of Justice acts, obviously a a criminal case. Um, Those investigations are ongoing. But the president said when he spoke to the nation on Monday that people will be held accountable. And he was very clear that um, when the FDIC took over this bank, that the bankers who ran it were going to be fired. He wanted to drive home the point that American tax dollars were not going to be used in this bailout, that they were drawing on money that the banks paid into the insurance corporation themselves. Um, And, you know, I guess... um, in terms of accountability, we'll see what happens going forward. Well, another bank at risk of failing is getting a big boost from its peers. Ron, what's going on with First Republic Bank? A number of other banks, the largest banks really in the country, got together and said, uh, we would just as soon take care of this inside the private industry of banking. And so they uh, ponied up something like $30 billion to keep First Republic from falling into the situation that uh, overtook SVB and also uh, Signature Bank uh, over the last weekend. So this is a little bit of the industry trying to police itself. It also probably involves protecting other assets that those banks have. And of course, it's in no bank's interest to have us all talking this much about the security of our banks or to have people lacking confidence in the banking system. This takes us all the way back to 1933 and nothing to fear but fear itself. Uh, Fear itself can be incredibly damaging in these kinds of instances, so the banking industry is trying to do what it can. Another bank, Credit Suisse, uh, uh, Swiss Bank, uh, has been in some doubt, and European shares of that particular bank were falling. So uh, there's been talk of having it perhaps merge with another Swiss bank. So the the industry itself is trying to mobilize against some of these doubts. Hmm. Well, the credit ratings firm Moody's cut its outlook for the entire U.S. banking sector to negative this week. It placed seven U.S. banks on review for potential credit rating downgrades. And that's, of course, in the wake of SVB's collapse. Todd, how might this affect what the Fed might do next with interest rates? Well, the Fed is under extraordinary scrutiny. Um, They were anyway, and now even more so. And next week, um, we're expecting more announcements on on, uh, whether the Fed's going to further raise interest rates. Now, the, the the pressures here, in addition to all of the money that the Fed has injected into the economy, and whether there's just systemically way too much money out there, and now we're on a on a on a bad foundation, is exacerbated by the fact that the only way to get this under control. This is an old debate. This is nothing new. Uh, but Liz Warren was right in the middle of this debate again. Not to put it all on Liz Warren, but um, job growth remains strong. Inflation remains um, maddeningly high, even though it's dropping. It's still above 6%. That's not healthy. And the Fed, get inside of Chairman, Chairman Powell's head for a second, the Fed will tell you the only way to get that under control is to tamp down on the economy to cool it off. And that means millions of people could lose their jobs. That's the bottom line. There probably isn't another way around it, he would, he would say. And that's the dilemma. That's the dilemma after 20 years um, – of injection of money into the economy. We're rounding up the week's biggest headlines, and we'll be back with more in just a moment. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. 
Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing, like not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the news roundup. We started off the hour talking about hits to the banking system. Doug in D.C. wanted to add his voice to the conversation. He writes, the banks have been loaning out money at near 0% interest rates during the pandemic and now will be repaid in inflated money that is worth less. The losses will hit all the banks for decades. Let's turn to a case that could overturn federal approval of a widely used drug for abortion and miscarriage care. On Wednesday, Trump appointed Texas Judge Matthew Kaczmarek publicly questioned lawyers for the first time in a lawsuit challenging the FDA's original approval of the drug. Mifepristone has been FDA-approved for abortion since 2000, and it's been used by millions of people in the U.S. Kazmierik says he'll soon decide whether to issue a preliminary injunction that could temporarily take Mifepristone off the market. Cheryl, what's the argument being made against the FDA? Well, so first, let's talk about medication abortion. It involves two drugs, misoprostol and mifepristone. This group, a Christian conservative group called Alliance Defending Freedom, is trying to take one of those drugs, mifepristone, off the market. And it argues in particular that in approving this drug, the FDA um, examined evidence that didn't really match the conditions under which the drug is actually used, that the FDA considered um, ultrasounds, for instance, and of course, women taking undergoing medication abortion at home uh, don't get ultrasounds. So the drug, the judge is now effectively considering whether or not he can single-handedly overturn the FDA and issue a ruling that would take this drug off the market, not only in states where abortion is illegal, but also in states where abortion is legal. And so obviously, this is a big concern to reproductive rights advocates and to millions of women across the country who are now and have been relying on medication abortion since the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court. Well, Ron, we're, we're talking about approval possibly being rolled back for a drug that's been legally available for over two decades. What's the precedent here? The judge was very interested in exactly that question, Jen. He asked lots and lots of questions about it in the court session yesterday in the hearing, uh, asking lawyers on both sides to respond to that and noting that no court has ever ordered the federal government to withdraw approval that had already for a drug that had already been legally available, as you say, for more than 20 years. So... This would smack of a new precedent, uh, something that would be, at least in some people's minds, uh, overreach on the part of a single federal judge for him to suddenly cut off the method that is used legally right now uh, in more than half the abortions in the United States. So that is something that it appears uh, Judge Kaczmarek is is aware of, that he has uh, a grasp on that particular large issue before him, but he's certainly not ruling it out. He has said he had considered perhaps uh, 
making a ruling as soon as possible didn't really indicate when he would make his ruling. And, of course, we can expect that there will be appeals. But it is an extraordinary amount of power to hand to a single federal judge. We've seen such power handed to a single federal judge before, but um, not on this particular issue and not affecting, uh, as Cheryl was saying, abortions in all 50 states. Well, and we should make sure to note that mifepristone is used for elective abortion, but it's also used in miscarriage care. If Kazmierich comes down on the side of the, the conservative group that, that brought this lawsuit, what, what happens next, Cheryl? Is that the end of it? No, I don't think that's the end of it. I think that's only the beginning. And, I, and you raise a very important point that this drug is also used in miscarriage care. And so proponents of keeping this drug on the market would say, look, are we, are we going to allow women who are suffering miscarriages to you know, undergo the trauma of intense bleeding without management of this drug. You could see a possible scenario where the judge might say, okay, well, you can keep it on the market for this approved use, miscarriage care, but you can't keep it, you know, for the other use, for abortions. Well, how then do pharmacists uh, discriminate and, and figure out what a doctor is prescribing the drug for then would be left up to the discretion of the doctor. You could see pharmacists getting investigated. It sort of opens up this whole uh, can of worms in which the legal apparatus of the country is putting its hands on the medical apparatus. Well, next week, we'll talk more about Mifepristone and the lawsuit. I'm going to get to the EPA in just a moment, but we got this comment from Phil about banking. Phil says, seems like the media is more interested in pursuing the SVB bank collapse and promoting financial instability than the reality that this is a relatively small bank along with Republic with little reach beyond a small group of risk takers. Why all the fear of contagion? So I just want to say, look, my money's in banks too, so (laughs) I have no interest in financial instability. But Ron, what's your response to Phil there? Social media, I think, is a large player in this because we have obviously had in the past pressure on banks. We've had people worried about whether or not their money was safe. And if you go back again to the Depression era, it was more or less a a word of mouth sort of thing when people started getting worried about, hey, somebody went down to the bank, wasn't able to get all their money out. It did not spread as fast or as far as it can today. And, of course, uh, we also have the special circumstances of the as 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 um, as your correspondent, as your as your caller call uh, pointed out, uh, the very large deposits that were made in SVB, where something like eighty five percent or more of all the deposits were in excess of the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar guarantee cutoff, uh, these were a lot of small venture capital companies that had their entire operating budget in that bank, and it, there were also a number of hedge funds who were involved and so on. So it was a lot of big players, a lot of heavy. So the caller is right that this is not a typical consumer or even typical commercial bank. But uh, there is still this factor of how fast word can spread in the social media era. And I would just add to that that contagion in the banking sector is its own contagion. It feeds on itself. And I think it's totally reasonable and right to worry about overhyping a situation like this where if it if it were just contained to its one little corner of the world, it wouldn't be that damaging. But that's really not the real world. And 
the big banks, the ones who are really, in a way, insulated from all this because they're gigantic, like JP Morgan, they're worried enough about it to take $30 billion of their own money and put it in First Republic. So um, when when the people with a direct stake in the health of this industry start putting their own money in deposits to make sure that not only some of these banks stay afloat, but that our perception of these banks stays, I won't say healthy, but um, <laughs> non yeah. non sick in, in, in a way. In that, my that it world, means something you, right. In my world, you would liken that to a, an infectious disease, right? Contagion Absolutely. is like an infectious disease, and also the point of point of fact, the markets have been very unstable this week as a result of all this churn, and that affects everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to get to the EPA, but we quickly have this question on the Mifepristone lawsuit from Patrick, who asks, why does the plaintiff have standing to bring this case? Cheryl, can you give us some insight? Um, I think that's a good question. I'm not a lawyer, but I know that it's a question that the court is considering. Does the plaintiff, in fact, have standing um, to to bring this case? Um, one would presume that if the judge concludes that the plaintiff did not have standing, then the whole then the whole case falls. I think one of the legal issues here, I think, also not a lawyer, some of the plaintiffs are uh, uh, anti-abortion doctors. And historically, physicians do get standing in a lot of cases that relate to patient care. The weird thing about this case in standing is that often, usually physicians intervene in cases and have standing when they want their patients to get care. This is a case where physicians are intervening and seeking standing where they want their patients to not have access to care. And that's weird. Mm. Okay. Right now, the audience really wants to talk about banks, so we'll take one more comment on this from Diane, who says, you cannot ignore the elephant in the room when discussing the present inflation, but it seems you have corporate profits or greed. This is a huge factor, yet one which the Fed has no control over. Congress downplays and one that seems to always be left out of every serious discussion. Please be sure this aspect is always included. Ron, corporate greed. Well, we know that some of the executives of SVB uh, sold off their stock. I don't know how much of it in percentage terms, but they sold off millions of dollars worth of stock in advance of all of us becoming aware of all this. So they clearly knew something was wrong. They clearly knew that a cliff was coming and that they were going to go over that cliff and they wanted to make their, their own personal stakes safe. They've also been paying themselves enormous bonuses leading up to all of this. And some of those bonuses were paid out literally in the hours before all of this became public and, you know, the stuff hit the fan. So that is a pretty good illustration of exactly what the caller is talking about, but more systemically throughout the entire system. There's no question that that much of the financial sector's behavior is driven by profit maximization and people trying to make a big killing either at a corporate level or individually. Let's turn now to the EPA. On Tuesday, the Environmental Protection Agency proposed to limit forever chemicals in drinking water to the lowest level detectable on tests. According to a 2020 study by the American Chemical Society, as many as 200 million Americans are exposed to these chemicals, also known as polyfluorinated substances, or PFAS, in their tap water. PFAS are linked to low birth weight in babies, kidney cancer, and other health issues. According to the EPA, this is the first ever national drinking standard regulating PFAS, Todd, how significant is this move by the by the EPA? Two hundred million of us. Yeah. I mean, that's that's over half the population. That means forever chemicals are just 
everywhere. It's a it's a major public health concern. Um, they're associated with many many forms of cancer, including bladder cancer and others. And if two hundred million people are estimated to be exposed, that means it's in the water just about everywhere. Now, uh, uh, PFAs um, they come from things like Teflon coating in pans, fire retardants, um, the types of I'm going to say plastic, even though a chemical engineer will hate that plasticky coatings on carpets and things like that. I hope I got that close enough to write. Sorry, it's probably not plastic. Anyway, uh, forever chemicals, they don't decompose. The very, pro- the very property of these PFAs that makes them hard and durable on your, on your egg pan makes them hard and durable in the environment. They don't break down. They don't, they don't decompose. And that means they stay forever. And once they get into your body, they do likewise. So um, the, the effort to regulate them would be systemic and broad, but also uh, – so would probably, if they could get these – down to the standard that's proposed, which is basically a zero safe standard. There's no safe level of PFAs that are that's sort of okay, like lead. No safe level. Avoid it. Get it out of everything if you can. Um, it would have an enormous public health benefit, estimated uh, 1.2 billion dollars over the course of this regula- uh, course of the proposed regulation. Now, 1.2 billion dollars in public health savings: less disease, less suffering, less misery, less healthcare costs. Wonderful. It doesn't come free because to retrofit um, water filtration, retrofit water treatment that goes into our houses, seven hundred and seventy billion is the estimate. Now, one point two is uh, a bit better benefit than seven hundred and seventy billion, which is the liability. So, net benefit. But where is that seven hundred and seventy billion? It's up front. It's on our water bills. Water costs in many municipalities would go up. One municipality where this. Um, where these proposed regulations were announced had $43 million in upgrades on their local water treatment. So it's definitely not free, and a lot of households would need help paying for that higher water cost. And surely um, the chemical industry and the people who will lobby and sue, I guarantee you, against these proposed regulations will point to the increased cost. It's true that it's not free, but the public health threat is real. So, so Ron, with all of that context, what comes next? Because this is clearly not something that can happen immediately. Probably the first thing that people should do is become aware of the degree of exposure that they have to these chemicals. Filtered water is a help. There are some other things that people can do in lifestyle terms. Uh, We can also identify where some of these chemicals have gotten into soil so that that can be remediated. Uh, There is much that people can do in at least the sense of lessening their exposure to these chemicals in the future, and that can help with the eventual uh, remediation of the chemicals that they already have in their bodies. So the best thing for people to do is to become aware that this is a health threat, that it is part of their environment, and to lessen their exposure to it as much as they can and start doing those things they can to eliminate what they already have in their bodies and support public policies that would make it more difficult for this kind of chemical to be approved and tolerated over such long periods of time. But as with all rules in Washington, this is a proposed rule. And it will be open to public comment before it's finalized. And you can be sure that the chemical industry is busy gathering its lobbyists and its researchers and its bank accounts to put forth a very, very vigorous effort to water down this rule. So this this is a proposed rule. Um, environmentalists are hailing it as a very important step forward to, for cleaning up our drinking water, but it's not a done deal. 
Well, a quick update on the storms that have been pounding California recently. As we speak, there are fears over the state's levee system. Many of the California's rural levees were built nearly a century ago. Three-fifths of those in the biggest flood zones have a high likelihood of failing. And half of the urban levees don't meet the design standards. That's according to state officials. On Wednesday, 200,000 Californians were without power largely due to wind. Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency in 40 of the state's 58 counties. Stay tuned to your local NPR station for ongoing coverage. Little love for Ron coming in on email. Ron is spot on. Social media is the cause and avenue for banking contagion, same as January 6th. It's the News Roundup. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the roundup. We got this comment from RTJ who says, have your listeners watched the latest Frontline on PBS, which just aired a great investigation into the bank failures and our artificial economy manufactured by Wall Street? Todd, I know you're a big a big fan of this doc, right? Um, I mean, if you heard my remarks and concerns at the top of the show over the many, many years of Fed uh, injection of free money, uh, post-2008, during COVID, and now recently, yes, I got a big education watching that doc. Let's plug them. Um, absolutely phenomenal piece of work. And from a television perspective, making 90 minutes of television that's engaging about <laughs> banks. Banks banks don't do anything that's good on television, but it's really engaging. And it was an education for me, I can say, so So I second it. So head over to your local PBS station and find that Frontline documentary. Thanks for the, the tip, RTJ. Well, let's move now to Alaska. On Monday, the Biden administration approved a controversial oil drilling project known as the Willow Project. It will allow the energy company ConocoPhillips to drill for oil in the National Petroleum Reserve that's on Alaska's northern slope. ConocoPhillips says they'll produce one. 180,000 barrels of oil per day. Jade Begay sits on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, which the Biden administration established in 2021. And here's what she had to say about the project's approval on NPR's Morning Edition this week. This type of commitment to oil and gas, which really just locks in, you know, potentially 30 years of more oil and gas uh, extraction in in ecosystems that are so sensitive, uh, really puts us on, like I said earlier, just this, you know, two steps forward, one step backward. Mm. Ron, the U.S. Department of Interior approved three of the five drilling pads ConocoPhillips requested. Why did the Biden administration approve any of these drilling sites when Biden promised no more drilling in his 2020 campaign? 
He did promise that, and initially he was trying to abide by that in his executive orders. Uh, but the drilling pause that he had set in place was uh, invalidated by a federal judge. Here we have another federal judge weighing in in 2021. And since then, uh, it's it's been a, somewhat of a different story with the Biden administration opening up some of the areas that they had promised to keep closed. Uh, look, th- th- there is a global issue here in terms of energy and in terms of a political calculation that the Democrats are making with respect to 2024. Uh, Right now, with the Ukrainian crisis, with the use of oil as a weapon by the Russians, with the importance of trying to maintain energy stability in the short run while attempting, as Biden has surely done, to pivot us towards a different kind of energy future, even a carbon neutral future, it is still necessary for the threat of the Russians in our time to be met, in part by having as much energy available from the United States as possible. That's an argument. And I think it also has to weigh on the Democrats that whatever happens to gasoline prices, they are still terribly high. And if they are still high or going even higher in 2024, that's going to be an extraordinarily difficult issue for Biden and the Democrats to deal with. So Anything that could be said, not that this oil from Alaska is going to get into the market anytime soon. It'll be years before it does. But it's just another issue for the Republicans to say your gas prices are high at the pump because Biden wouldn't let us drill in Alaska. Well, on Tuesday, a collection of environmental and indigenous groups filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration in response to the project's approval. Cheryl, what are they arguing? Well, they're arguing that um, this was, you know, this was a decision that the president promised not to make. The Trump administration said he was going to let this go forward. Um, I wanted to say that this move has really put Biden in a tough spot with his left wing, and in particular, his own interior secretary, Deb Holland. She is a Native American woman. She's the first Native American uh, to serve as interior secretary. She opposed this project when she was a member of Congress. Um, And now she is in a position of in effect, overseeing it and letting it go forward. Mm. And Todd, when we talk about the legal arguments against this drilling plan, I mean, what are you expecting to come from that? It's a coalition of environmental groups, indigenous groups in Alaska who are suing to try to block this permission from the Biden administration. Uh, there are There's a whole variety of laws, uh, environmental laws, laws that govern uh, the Bureau of Land Management, wildlife laws. It's looks like the lawsuit is is sort of touching on various parts of this that that um, th- that the Biden administration didn't consider climate impact didn't consider impact on fisheries on indigenous people and in fact on polar bears too so that e- each of these things has different aspects in the law um, that they're going after so um, so th- therein lies the lawsuit, and I think you could have you could have expected the lawsuit. Um, you know, it's interesting what what Ron and, and Cheryl both said. Um, you know, when gas prices were really high, President Biden turned to the Saudis and said, "Hey, increase production, throw us a lifeline." The Russians, you know, were basically in a proxy war with the Russians, and Putin is choking off the supply and driving up prices. Um, the Saudis said. No, thanks. Uh, Didn't want to help out, uh, I guess you could say Joe Biden, but weren't going to help out the world um, oil supply and hence gas prices in our tanks at all. Um, Maybe if you're in the Biden administration and you're looking at the long term 
um, the long-term level of production and reliance on these foreign sources and the political liability of high gas prices. I mean, Democrats are famous, are notorious from running from their own shadows and running from Republican criticism on a daily basis. And this might be another example of that. But, um, you know, I can't tell you for sure that this is reactive to, you know, turning to the Saudis as we used to do for help and not getting it. Um, but maybe looking over the horizon uh, of the political impact of prices, this had something to do with it. Cheryl, were you going to jump in again? I was going to say that, but gas prices have actually been coming down since their peak. For now, right. Um, So this, you know, this has been just a very tough choice for Biden. Also, he was constrained by a judge's ruling in favor of ConocoPhillips, the company that is advancing this project. So while the environmentalists are making their case, there's this other court ruling that the administration had to contend with. And it's our understanding that folks inside the administration concluded that they couldn't win. Well, let's head over to some other legal news. Prosecutors for the Southern District of New York invited former President Donald Trump to testify before a grand jury this week. This is part of an investigation into hush money Trump paid through his attorney to adult film star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign. Todd, there are a number of cases mounting against Trump. Briefly, what's involved in this one? Yeah, and I think a couple of weeks ago, none of us expected that Manhattan and the Stormy Daniels payment would have been first. We were all looking toward Georgia. All yeah. looking toward Georgia and Fulton County and DA Fonnie Willis to maybe charge in uh, the, in the the effort to overturn Georgia, but all eyes on New York now. So here's here's what's at issue. Uh, it does look like look like. Trump's going to get indicted. We don't know that for sure. Grand jury proceedings are secret, but they invited Trump to testify, as you said, and that points to a potential indictment. Um, During the 2016 2016 campaign, we know that Michael Cohen, uh, Donald Trump's lawyer and fixer, uh, paid Stormy Daniels $130,000 ostensibly to hush up, hush money about her brief affair with Donald Trump. It was days before uh, the election in 2016. Michael Cohen was later reimbursed for that for that hundred and thirty thousand. Was reimbursed by Donald Trump, and we know that that's true because Donald Trump signed the canceled checks, many of them literally from the White House. So um, he, here's the legal issue um, that is recorded in the Trump Organization's book as legal expenses pursuant to a retainer agreement with the lawyer Michael Cohen. There was no such legal uh, retainer agreement. It didn't exist. And legal expenses does not accurately probably describe what that was, right? Legal expenses. Um, Falsely recording expenses like that in your business books is not legal, but it's a misdemeanor. It's a misdemeanor. You can get in trouble for it. You're not going to federal prison for it or even state prison, probably. However, if you do that in furtherance of a second crime, it's a felony. That second crime, and this is the legal theory we think that's going to operate here unless there are other charges that come out of a grand jury. Again, we don't know. If you do it in furtherance of a second crime, like a campaign finance violation, using this money to help your campaign because you don't want news of an affair to come out and make you lose an election, well, that would be a felony. So therein lies um, therein lies the legal argument and Donald Trump would argue that none of this had to do with the campaign. I was just trying to hide it from my wife. Well, let's hear from Trump's current lawyer, Joe Tacopina on MSNBC. First of all, there's a crucial distinction between um, separating campaign funds from personal funds, right? And on personal fund usage, here's the bright line test, and it, it ends this case. It ends any case regarding Stormy Daniels. If the spending or the fulfillment of a commitment or the expenditure would exist irrespective of the campaign, it's not a campaign law violation. Ron, specifically, what does the prosecution need to prove here? 
The prosecution probably needs to prove that this was in some sense or another related to uh, Trump's political career if, if they want to connect it to some kind of a campaign donation. And we don't have, as Todd was saying, we don't have all the connective tissue here that presumably the grand jury is being shown. Uh, perhaps, and now we're totally speculating, this is some of what Michael Cohen's testimony the other day that was so anticipated uh, was touching upon. Perhaps that can be established. Perhaps, and I know that it is uh, the former president's story now that this was all just about, and we're seeing this story popping up all over the place. Oh, he didn't care about the voters. He just was worried that he was going to get in trouble at home, uh, that his wife was going to be upset with him about Stormy Daniels. Well, okay, uh, that may very well be that he was concerned about his wife's reaction. It doesn't seem to have been very concerned about it at other times. But now there's an election. Now he's running for office. Perhaps that's the point that needs to be proven, that there is that connective tissue. Really, really briefly, Ron, the Manhattan District Attorney on this case, Alvin Bragg, recently secured a conviction against Trump's family business for tax fraud. How were the stakes different in this case? In this case, Donald Trump himself is the, is undeniably the key figure. Now, many would argue that uh, Wesselberg and all the rest of the executives at uh, Trump organizations did absolutely nothing without Trump's say-so and without his direction. But that is a difficult thing sometimes to prove. Uh, this in particular could double back, and we don't know all the evidence that has turned Alvin Bragg around on this. But you know, uh, earlier after Bragg took over this office, uh, he himself uh, did not indicate very much eagerness to pursue it, wasn't all that sure that he had a case. There were lawyers who actually resigned from his office because they were so well, flummoxed that all their hard work was not going to reach fruition. Why wasn't Alvin Bragg bringing charges? And so the question now is, what's changed his mind? And is there new evidence? Is there new connective tissue? That's what we're trying to find out. And presumably when the grand jury comes back, and if there is an indictment, as everyone seems to expect at this point, much of that should be there. Well, let's quickly try to get to a couple of other stories before we wrap. Now, something that's not likely to pass the House with a Republican majority is gun safety legislation. President Biden was in Monterey Park, California this week to announce a new executive order on guns. My executive order directs my attorney general to take every lawful action possible to move us as close as we can to universal background checks without new legislation. Cheryl, what exactly will this order do? Well, what it will do is it directs the attorney general to try to, in essence, tighten this background check loophole that Democrats have been trying unsuccessfully to tighten through the legislature, through Congress for years. Um, we know that background checks are really important for gun safety, but a lot of guns are sold without background checks. People are selling guns at gun shows, online, um, in other ways that escape the background check requirement because the sellers are not federally licensed firearms dealers. So what Biden wants to do is to tighten the definition of who is a federally licensed firearm dealer so that more of those gun sales are swept into the background check system and that people who shouldn't be buying guns aren't buying them. 
want to touch on a couple of other stories. One we're watching is out of Texas. This week, the state announced it was taking control of Houston's public school system. It's one of the largest school districts in the nation. A state-appointed board will replace the current locally elected board on June 1st. Education Commissioner Mike Morath told Houston Public Media the new board has, quote, a firm belief that all children can learn and can achieve at high levels when properly supported. Morath justified the takeover because of low-performing schools like Wheatley High School, which serves almost entirely black and brown students. Democratic state lawmakers opposed the takeover. The ACLU of Texas tweeted, quote, this hostile takeover threatens to close schools, drive out teachers, and take away the power of local communities to elect their own leaders. And we end with some news from Southern California. On Sunday, at least eight people died after their boats capsized off the coast of San Diego. James Gartland, the head of the San Diego Fire Rescue Department's lifeguard division, called the deaths, quote, one of the worst maritime smuggling tragedies in recent years. According to the U.S. Coast Guard, since 2021, at least 23 people have died in smuggling cases in Southern California. Well, we've got just about a minute left here, and I'd love to hear from each of you a story you think hasn't gotten enough attention this week or a story you're watching very closely. Todd, I'll come to you first. Going G, I will say, has gotten some attention, but it's been swamped by the banks. Um, it's a story that Cheryl's been covering closely. She might have more to say about it, but I think it's fascinating. Let me just say briefly, he's a fascinating individual. He was just arrested, charged with a billion-dollar fraud, 10 counts of money laundering and the rest of it at the Sherry Netherland Hotel on Fifth Avenue in New York. The part about this that's most interesting for me, since I spend all my time on democracy and creeping authoritarianism, is his very close relationship with Steve Bannon. Do you remember when Steve Bannon uh, got plucked off of a yacht and charged with federal fraud for the We Build the Wall scam? He was later pardoned. That was that was Guo's yacht. That was the Lady May, his yacht. They're close and and they've got a long history together. Sure, I think it's fascinating. Okay, I'm, I'm, no, I'm actually going to tell you about a story you're going to start hearing about, and that is new evidence that the coronavirus pandemic may have leapt from raccoon dogs at a wet market in China to humans. This is more evidence that the origin of the pandemic was natural, even as we see kind of building interest in the lab leak theory here in Washington. Ron, what about you? I would say the gerrymandering cases that are going forward in say, state supreme courts around the country, that could make it extremely difficult for the Democrats to take back control of the House in the next election or the next one or the next one after that. All right, everybody. Thanks. That's Ron Elving, senior editor and correspondent for NPR, Cheryl Gay Stolberg. She covers the intersection of health, policy and politics for The New York Times and Todd Swillick, host of Vice's Breaking the Vote series. Before we turn to the international edition of the News Roundup, let's take a moment to remember Bobby Caldwell. I came back to let you know, got a thing for you, and I can't let go. The Blue-Eyed Souls singer died this week after a long illness at the age of 71. His wife tweeted, I am forever heartbroken. Thanks to all of you for your many prayers over the years. Caldwell's music was often sampled, but his biggest hit was the late 70s smash, What You Won't Do For Love. We'll be back with the international edition of the News Roundup after this quick break. We've got a lot more to cover, so stay with us. Ah, 
the satisfying sounds of more sales in your business. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. But you shouldn't have to pay more to scale your business. With Stamps.com, you can import orders from wherever you sell online, find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times, and instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers and stock up on supplies. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It's time to round up the biggest headlines from around the globe. Let's start in Pakistan. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan was at the center of clashes between the police and his party workers who said they wouldn't let the former cricketer be arrested. He spoke to the media as fighting raged outside his home in Lahore. I mean, this country has known me for 50 years. So someone like me is being treated today like, uh, I I guess, some uh, uh, lethal terrorist. We check in on the latest from the war in Ukraine, the legacy of the war in Iraq 20 years after the campaign of shock and awe began, and the Biden administration's calls for a potential TikTok ban. When it comes to uh, potential threats to our national security, when it comes to uh, the safety of Americans, when it comes to their privacy, we're going to speak out and we're going to be very clear about that. And China swiped right back. More on that later. Lots to get to. Joining us for the hour, David Rennie. He's the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. He also co-hosts the podcast Drum Tower. David, hello. Hello. Also with us, Indira Lakshmanan. She's the global enterprise editor at the Associated Press. Indira, always great to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. And Nick Schifrin, foreign affairs and defense correspondent at PBS NewsHour. Nice to have you back, Nick. Thanks so much for having me back. Well, Russia sent an unmanned U.S. drone crashing into the Black Sea this week, and U.S. military officials are not happy. Was it intentional or not? Uh, Don't know yet. We know that the intercept was intentional. Uh, We know that the aggressive behavior was intentional. We also know it was very unprofessional and very unsafe. That's General Mark Milley speaking on Wednesday. He's also chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The Pentagon released footage of a Russian fighter jet flying over the drone, spraying it with what officials say was jet fuel. Nick, what was this drone doing? The drone was doing what many drones and U.S. intelligence assets do over the Black Sea quite often, um, surveillance. It can look into Ukraine, specifically Russian-occupied Crimea, as well as Russia itself. And so when this drone left in the morning uh, from its base in Eastern Europe, it was pretty much a standard surveillance mission. But the Russians apparently from the very top uh, have had it with these these drones that have been flying regularly for not only a year of, of war in Ukraine, but well long before that. And so there seems to be a very high level authorization to harass this drone Uh, And we know it's high level in part because today the harassers, the pilots who did this, were awarded by the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu. And these jets spent about half an hour trying to uh, spray the drone with gas, uh, uh, basically somehow impede its ability to surveil. And then it seems like the jet just got too close and clipped the drone. We don't know, as, as we just heard from General Milley, whether it was purposeful or not. But clearly the harassment 
was purposeful, uh, and Russia trying to send a signal to the U.S. that it doesn't particularly appreciate these drones, these surveillance assets flying, even though they're flying in uh, international air. So the U.S. says we're going to keep doing it, but at the same time has not penalized Russia in any way. Uh, there is no penalty. There is a diplomatic demarche. There's conversations that the U.S. and Russia are having, but clearly the Biden administration not trying to escalate. Uh, and it does seem, despite the uh, the awarding today, uh, Russia also trying not to escalate this incident. Indira, what is the U.S. doing to recover the drone? Right. So the U.S. has said that they expect that there's going to be little for the Russians to recover. It's it's apparently fallen very deep in the sea. The Russians have said they're going to recover it, but the Americans don't seem to think there's much to get. As, as Nick said, the U.S. has rebuked Russia both publicly and privately for what they've called dangerous and unprofessional behavior. Um, but in a way, I mean, this is not new. Not only does Russia, um, you know, buzz and intercept spy um, planes, but so does every other country. And just last month, the U.S. intercepted two Russian bombers that were in international airspace off of Alaska's coast. We didn't dump any fuel on them. We, quote unquote, escorted them for 12 minutes, according to the Pentagon. But these kinds of interceptions are not um, unusual. What is unusual is actually the apparent dumping of fuel and the causing of it to crash. I have to say it reminds me of back in 2001 when a uh, when a Chinese fighter jet um, crashed into an American spy plane um, and was forced, which was forced to land in Hainan. Um, on the island of Hainan. I was in China at the time, and it was a huge um, diplomatic incident in 2001. Um, so this is not unprecedented, but I would have to say that, look, there have been several high-level engagements. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary and their Russian counterparts, along with the Russian ambassador being summoned to the State Department and the U.S. ambassador in Russia being summoned. I think that what we're seeing, though, is that Blinken and Lavrov met earlier this month in New Delhi, and they don't want to increase this already sky-high tension. At the same time, let's put it in the context of the Ukraine war. Poland and Slovakia have said they're going to send fighter planes to Ukraine, and that definitely boosts the tension between Russia and NATO. And we know that Xi Jinping is going to be in Moscow next week. So this is the, the, the backstory of all of this is very important to keep in mind as well. Well, Indira, you mentioned uh, the decision to send fighter jets to Ukraine by Poland and Slovakia. David, how how important are these moves for Ukraine? This is something they've been asking for for some time. Well, they've been asking for lots of advanced weapons and in particular asking for Western fighter jets, F-16 fighter jets. These planes that Poland offered to send on Thursday and then surprised, uh, uh, surprisingly today, Friday, Slovakia offered to send some planes. These are not the planes that Ukraine has been asking for. These are old Soviet uh, MiG-29s. Uh, the Slovakian ones, most of them can't even fly. Uh, because they're so old and also need Russian engineers to fix them, they could be useful for spare parts. And so there is some discussion uh, in the kind of defense reporters press that this is really one of these deals where countries that are much keener to send advanced weapons to Ukraine, which are very often Eastern European countries with their own deep memories of suspicion of Soviet and Russian aggression, they've consistently tried to force the hand of their Western partners to send more advanced Western weaponry by sending older Soviet weapons in the first place. And we've seen so many times that, you know, countries like Germany uh, or France, or in some cases, the United States were reluctant to send the most advanced 
the longest range rockets, uh, the most advanced tanks. And it was older Soviet kit being sent from the Eastern European countries that although they're now NATO members still have a lot of old Soviet kit lying around that sort of paved the way for these more advanced weapon systems. Clearly, uh, the Russians are trying to downplay this. We saw the Kremlin saying that uh, that these countries are trying to dispose of old unnecessary kit, which will be destroyed. But if it did lead to uh, more advanced weaponry going ahead of what we still assume is going to be a spring offensive by the Russians, then that's not great news for Russia. The Americans still resisting the idea of sending things like uh, American F-16s to Ukraine, uh, making the argument that uh, it would take way too long to train people, that these are not just like sort of new cars where you can just give someone the keys and they drive away, and that there are other things that Ukraine needs more urgently. But as, as Indira says, I think the next leg of this is also going to be diplomatic, as we see the Chinese leader here uh, announcing that he's going to be in Moscow on Monday through Wednesday. Then he's going to speak uh, online or on the phone to the Ukrainian leader, uh, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Now, that's the first time that Xi Jinping would have spoken to him since the war began. And I think the fear for some Western governments is that China is going to offer a kind of instant ceasefire peace deal that is actually not one that Ukraine has any interest in taking up and that China is in part trying to burnish its diplomatic credentials, but it's also going to put everyone in a difficult spot if they're explaining why the war should continue when China is saying to the world, let's have peace uh, instantly, uh, even if Ukraine doesn't want to allow Russia to continue to occupy 20% of its landmass. Well, let's stick with China for a, a moment. The Biden administration is demanding the app TikTok be sold away from its Chinese owner ByteDance, or it could face a nationwide ban. And this is the latest escalation in U.S. concerns over what the app does with user data. Former President Donald Trump attempted to ban the app in 2020, but was blocked by the courts. Nick, what's different this time around? Well, not very much, actually. Um, the Biden administration has come around to the Trump administration's approach and decided that it had to force a sale or threaten a ban. And uh, I mean, we use sound from President Trump saying almost exactly the same thing of where the Biden administration stands to yet today, um, three years ago, Trump was saying this. But the bottom line is this, that you know, there's a national intelligence law in China that requires not only Chinese nationals, but companies to cooperate with the government. And that means handing over data if the government asks. That means suppressing or promoting particular content if the government asks. And that's at the core of the intelligence community and the national security establishment's concerns in the United States, that despite uh, three years of negotiations with the committee uh, known as CFIUS, uh, with TikTok, the U.S. just simply isn't convinced that the uh, a Chinese parent company, ByteDance, will be able to be somehow separated from the content, the data, the algorithm of TikTok inside the United States and and its users. You know what TikTok says is, look, there's there's we've been negotiating for three years. It's called Project Texas. That's the negotiation. TikTok has created a new company whose board reports to the U.S. government, whose employees are subject to U.S. approval. They've allowed Oracle to control all user data, review uh, the algorithm, the content, uh, but ultimately the U.S. isn't convinced. We're talking to Nick Schifrin with PBS NewsHour, David Rennie with The Economist, and the AP's Indira Lakshmanan. For now, let's stay with the U.S.'s demand that Chinese company ByteDance sell its popular app TikTok over concerns about how user data is handled. On Thursday, China's foreign ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbing responded to the U.S. 
We've always maintained that data security issues should not be used as a tool for some countries to overstretch the concept of national security, abuse state power, and unjustifiably suppress other countries' enterprises. The U.S. has so far failed to produce evidence that TikTok threatens U.S. national security. The U.S. should stop spreading false information about data security issues, stop unreasonably suppressing this company, and then provide an open, fair, just, and non-discriminatory business environment for foreign companies to invest and operate in the U.S. Nick, TikTok's chief executive is expected to testify next week before the House Energy and Commerce Committee. What is the committee hoping to learn? I think the committee is hoping to grill him, uh, grill the CEO. He will undoubtedly bring up what we were talking about before, Project Texas, the extensive negotiations that TikTok has undertaken with the U.S. government uh, in the last three years. Uh, but the U.S. will push back. You know, there are Senate intelligence officials uh, who I talk to and, and that information is shared. That's one of the sources of the anti-TikTok bills as well, uh, where they will uh, paint Project Texas, paint TikTok's efforts as insufficient, that, that they still think U.S. data uh, will cross uh, outside of the United States, uh, including being accessed in China. They still think the algorithm will be controlled by China. And frankly, they're skeptical that Oracle can do what, what Oracle claims it can do, which is control uh, a company as dynamic uh, as TikTok. So the CEO will certainly uh, state his case, but uh, we're, we're expecting more skepticism uh, and frankly, more momentum, uh, both pressure on TikTok to divest uh, and also more momentum toward a, a bill uh, that's coming out of the Senate uh, that would try and give the Commerce Department the ability to ban it outright. Well, Nick, just briefly, has the U.S. found any proof as of as of yet that data is being mishandled? It's an important question because no, at least not publicly, <laughs> there is no proof that uh, TikTok itself has uh, opened up the, the back door and, and it's flowing out to, to Chinese intelligence, which is sifting through, you know, what it means when, when we all check our cat videos. Um, <laughs> what the U.S. government believes, and again, this is both the Trump and Biden administration have come to this position, is that if Beijing decided, there is nothing TikTok could do to resist two things. One, a data dump. Uh, of uh, U.S. users into um, Beijing's intelligence servers, but two, the control of the data, that with 100 million, I guess 200 million eyeballs, 100 million users in the United States, you have an extraordinary capacity to reach a lot of people all at once. And I think what U.S. legislators certainly are convinced about is if, for example, one day Beijing decided to invade Taiwan, that TikTok would suddenly be filled with propaganda describing why uh, Taiwan was always Chinese. And so that's the concern. But you raise a very good point. The, the proof, the public proof is, is, is not that forthcoming. It is more about what Beijing is capable of doing hypothetically. Well, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang also came out against an agreement that allows Australia to purchase nuclear-powered submarines from the U.S. On Tuesday, Wang said the partnership between the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. shows a typical Cold War mentality. The latest joint statement issued by the U.S., U.K., and Australia showed that the three countries have gone further down the wrong and dangerous path for their own geopolitical self-interest, completely ignoring the concerns of the international community. The cooperation of nuclear-powered submarines between the U.S. and Australia involves nuclear-armed countries transferring a large amount of highly enriched weapon-grade 
uranium to a non-nuclear power country, posing a severe risk in nuclear proliferation. David, briefly remind us about this agreement between these three nations. Well, it's a really big deal. Uh, Australia will be uh, one of the only non-nuclear powers to have nuclear-powered submarines. And why are those so important? Well, a nuclear-powered submarine can stay underwater for much longer than even the best uh, conventional uh, diesel-electric submarines. Uh, They're much stealthier. They can collect things like intelligence. Um, And why is China making this big deal and saying that this is a danger for nuclear safety around the world? That's not their concern. Their concern is that they understand, and I think rightly, that in joining this pact with America and the UK, that Australia is saying that it is willing to be part of a global force of nuclear submarines uh, in the Indo-Pacific, and that is aimed at China and a potential war in Taiwan, because these are not the submarines that Australia needs if the only job that they do is to guard Australia's coastlines. These are long-range weapons that would be extremely useful for the Americans and an alliance to use in a war against China. And so... This is about geopolitics uh, and the signal that Australia is sending that it wants to grow closer to America rather than just concentrate on trade with China, uh, which is what China would like. I want to get your thoughts on this uh, comment we got from Margaret, who emails, it appears that I am alone in my concern that the current administration is getting close to a hot war with Russia and a cold war with China, which was not consistently referred to as quote-unquote, our enemy prior to this administration. And I don't believe Margaret means that the Biden administration refers to China as our enemy, but I think she's talking more about just the, the, the discourse that's circulating right now. Indira, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. I mean, I was just going to say that I guess it depends on how closely one is paying attention. I, I mean, again, having David Rennie is based in Beijing now and has been for many years. I was based there in the late 90s and early 2000s. And this goes in cycles. There were certainly times when I wrote many times leads over seven years in which saying this is the hottest and worst that the tensions have been between the U.S. and China. And the U.S. spy plane incident downing was one the attack of the U.S. embassy in Beijing over Chinese complaints over the hitting of their embassy in Belgrade was another. There have been just so many over the past 25 years that I think it's wrong to say this is the worst it's been. Um, It's all been bad up and down. Certainly the tensions are very high now. I, I did want to clarify one thing, which is that the Biden administration has emphasized that these ships would not carry nuclear weapons of any kind. They are nuclear powered, of course, which means that they are able to go, um, they're stealthier and they're much more capable than conventionally powered vessels. And everything David said is correct about the way in which it sort of forms one more ring of sort of Western powers allied in a way defending Taiwan against uh, Chinese incursions or efforts to, by force, take Taiwan. Um, but I think that links back to something that Nick was saying about TikTok and, and how if there were such an attack, you know, by China on, on the island of Taiwan, you know, I think you could absolutely expect to see apps like TikTok taken over by propaganda. And that is very much at the heart of what these concerns are. Let's not forget that if we're talking about privacy, a lot of tech privacy advocates are saying that Every tech company practically has extensive data harvesting practices that exploit user information. And so if policymakers really want to protect Americans from surveillance, 
we need a basic privacy law that bans all companies from collecting so much sensitive data. Uh, you know, to add to that, of course, there's an additional concern when it's China, because it isn't even about TikTok opening a backdoor. Chinese security officials can get access to this on their own, according to all the experts on Chinese espionage that I've spoken to. So all of this is very linked, Jen. Mm. Yeah, D- David, I'd love to hear your perspective as well as someone who's reporting from China right now. Look, I think that we're trying something that we never tried before in modern history, which is to have a country that we have a very adversarial relationship, China, providing something as sort of integral to everyday life for 100 million Americans as the app that their teenagers are basically addicted to. You know, the Soviet Union didn't make apps that knew what your kid was watching, uh, knew what their tastes in, you know, everything from kind of music to porn were. Uh, can use data in that app to track your movements. And we did see TikTok doing something very dumb. They then said it was rogue employees who they fired, using their uh, location data in the app to track some American journalists to see if they were the people receiving leaked information from TikTok employees. And so you see the power of these technologies that are sitting in our pockets, in our homes, because modern day globalization is creating these new products that didn't exist in the first Cold War with the Soviet Union. But the, the, the country on the other end of that transaction is one that many governments in the West do not trust at all. And that's just a really new problem that we haven't faced before. And there aren't easy solutions to this because we are economically so bound in with a country like China that, as Nick said, openly says in its national security law that companies have to obey the national security instructions of intelligence agencies. And that quote you played from the foreign ministry where they said, you know, how dare the Americans use national security to treat foreign companies differently? If I open my window, you could probably hear the noise of many foreign businessmen laughing hollowly because that's exactly what China does to American and other companies here in China. We're talking to David Rennie in China for The Economist, Indira Lakshmanan with the Associated Press, and Nick Schifrin with PBS NewsHour. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. We got this email from Patricia who says, TikTok? What about the phones themselves? And Nick, I think this speaks to the earlier point made by David and Indira about how we think about privacy just in general in the digital age. I think it goes not only to privacy, but also I I think what you were getting at with the phone itself, which is the very technology we use. So the end of the Trump administration saw really the beginnings of what was referred to as the digital iron curtain, efforts to create a bifurcated technological world. That's not the phrase they use, but they essentially said that you either were with us on technology, that's, you know, uh, uh, that's Samsung, that's Apple, that's, you know, American and and European phones and uh, telecommunications networks, or you were with them, you were with Huawei. And that language has stopped with the Biden administration, but the efforts haven't stopped to try and create what the Trump administration were calling clean networks, the idea of no Chinese technology touching U.S. embassies in a particular country, let alone U.S. people uh, inside the U.S. or traveling around the world. But it is simply impossible, at least as of now. You've not only got examples of Huawei in the rural systems of the United States, although that's reducing uh, because of, of investments that the, the administration and Congress have made. But, you know, huge swaths uh, of, of the world uses Huawei 
5G uses Huawei phones because they were good, they were easy, they were cheap. They were there before the American and Western technology was there. So the thought of you know, countries that are being fought over diplomatically between China and the United States in Southeast Asia that already have Huawei safe cities, that already have Huawei 5G, you know, that ship has sailed. Uh, and, and so, as, as David rightly put it, we've never seen this kind of relationship before, both the integration economically, so fundamental to so much in the United States from, um, from electric cars to, to toys at Walmart, uh, at simultaneously with the confrontation. And, you know, everybody's trying to figure it out, but clearly the United States government, bi- bipartisan, uh, is is really trying to to set some certain lines, especially on uh, technology and military and Taiwan and human rights going forward. Well, I want to get to some breaking news here. The Associated Press reports that the International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Putin for war crimes because of his alleged involvement in abductions of children from Ukraine. The court said in a statement, Putin is, quote, allegedly responsible for the war crime of unlawful deportation of population and that of unlawful transfer of population from occupied areas of Ukraine to the Russian Federation. Indira, what do you make of this news? Yeah, I mean, it's huge. Um, The ICC, of course, has before from their headquarters um, done things like this, issuing arrest warrants for major leaders. They did it for the leader of Sudan, who for years, you know, was able to get away with not being arrested. I think that the fact of ICC issuing it for Putin, there must have been a lot of discussions about this because Putin does travel to countries where he could be um, arrested on an ICC warrant. I think it's very unlikely that that would happen, um, but it's it's very interesting. He Also, the court issued warrants for the woman who is Russia's commissioner for children's rights. I think the, the fact that this happened... Um, You know, the AP has done a lot of investigations about war crimes in Bucha and elsewhere. Um, There is evidence out there of war crimes and also of crimes against children. But uh, I would be very surprised if they're actually able to arrest him. But you can believe that this was discussed among major world powers before ICC issued this. David, any thoughts? Well, I think, you know, clearly the ICC is is a complicated issue in America because America has always been very uh, skeptical and resistant of the ICC, precisely because they feared that American leaders might one day, you know, potentially or American troops might get targeted by it. I think what we're seeing is the rules-based order being strained to its limits by what Russia has been doing in Ukraine, because the the whole rules-based order, if you take it up to the kind of pinnacle of international law, and kind of the international community. It's the United Nations, and at the top of that, the Security Council and the five permanent members of the Security Council. And I think you've seen some really interesting discussions uh, led by countries like France, another permanent member of the Security Council, talking about the dangers that we're moving into an age of impunity, because the fact that Russia, as a permanent member of the Security Council, backed often by China, either with active votes or abstentions, has basically been vetoing any investigation of any of its actions and war crimes in Ukraine, using its position as one of the great powers at the top of the UN system, is basically breaking the UN system in front of our eyes. And so it's not just France. There are others now saying, do we need to rethink the whole rules-based order that we thought we had built after the end of the Second World War under the slogan, never again, when you have a rogue power that is one of the world's great powers sitting at the top table in the UN? And so I think all of these arguments about things like ICC warrants 
they're really pointing to that larger struggle that the, the whole rules-based order is in flux at the moment. And, and Vladimir Putin is testing it to its limits. And the Chinese, for their own reasons, are willing to sometimes lend a hand. On Sunday, Iran's foreign minister said on state TV that a prisoner swap with the U.S. was imminent. Top diplomat Hossein Amir Abdullahian even went so far as to claim that a document laying out the exchange was was approved in March of last year. It's news the Americans detained in Iran and their families have long awaited, but is it true? The U.S. quickly denied the statements. Nick, what more did American officials have to say in response? Oh, they had quite a lot to say about this one. Not only did they deny the statements, but they said that they were uh, mean-spirited, evil, a lie. They basically painted it as Iranian propaganda to try and make it seem like the U.S. wasn't doing very much to to get out American detainees. Um, And U.S. officials on the record and on background uh, really had quite a lot of words to say because Uh, It kind of cut to one of the criticisms of the Biden administration, which is that it hasn't been more successful in getting American detainees out. And it came right after Siam Aknamazi, the the longest held dual uh, American-Iranian prisoner uh, who's been arrested since 2015, gave an interview to Christiane Amanpour. Well, we have Uh, some tape of that. Let's, let's, Let's listen. I keep getting told that I'm going to be rescued and deals fall apart or I get left abandoned. Honestly... The other hostages and I desperately need President Biden to finally hear us out, to finally hear our cry for help and bring us home. And he spoke to Christiane Amanpour from Evin Prison in Tehran. Go ahead, Nick. Well, it's just amazing. I mean, we've never heard uh, Simak Namazi's voice or any American detainee's voice from inside that prison, that notorious place. Uh, And he basically said the... Biden, sorry, the Obama White House abandoned him. Biden wasn't doing enough. Uh, And he appealed to Biden to put um, the liberty of what he called innocent Americans above politics as as the next sentence of what you just played. So so the pressure has been on the U.S. administration to do more. uh, And so that's why it kind of touched a nerve. Um, But of course, it also comes as Iran's nuclear program uh, has advanced. Uh, it is enriching uranium to uh, almost 90%, about 86%, 83%, uh, which is right below weapons grade, but but is usable in a weapon. Uh, and so Iran accelerates its nuclear program while there is absolutely no diplomacy uh, or, 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 or chances of diplomacy right now between the U.S. Uh, and Iran. Well, let's stay in Iran for another big story from the week. The government arrested more than 100 people. It suspects of being involved with the poisoning of thousands of schoolgirls. Since late November, nearly 300 schools countrywide have been attacked with what's believed to be toxic gas. David, what more do we know about who's behind these attacks and their possible motivation? It's just an absolutely extraordinary story because everyone is pointing fingers at everyone else. And it's not also clear whether every single one of these schools really is a poison gas attack or whether this is now panic, understandable panic spreading because some of the symptoms are things just like sort of uh, uh, severe headaches and people feeling faint because there's tremendous fear. And you understand why, because, as you say, starting in November, total of 13,000 girls have fallen ill and some have been taken to hospital with really uh, serious illness. But then you have just a total cacophony of people blaming. uh, So you have some politicians saying that these are extreme Islamist groups who don't approve of girls being educated. Uh, You have other activists 
saying that this is somehow linked to the regime trying to punish schoolgirls for their role in the protests that listeners will remember we've seen for months now uh, in the streets, often involving young women uh, complaining about the strict clerical conservative Islamic rule in Iran after the death of a young woman uh, who was killed in September uh, for having a sort of incorrectly adjusted headscarf, according to the morality police. Uh, you also have the government, the regime, saying that these poisonings may be linked to foreign dissidents, uh, you know, which is very hard to understand how they come by this view. Even those arrests that you mentioned at the top, that's also unclear, because if you look at Iranian state media, they're saying that these people arrested perhaps were releasing harmless but smelly substances to cause panic and disrupt education. So it's a total mess. What's interesting is you're seeing uh, the White House, for example, which had originally sort of been cautious, saying that Iran was investigating this and they hoped that that would proceed, now suggesting that perhaps there needs to be credible outside investigations. You're seeing the European Parliament calling on the United Nations uh, to get involved and try and have get to the bottom of what is going on. But, you know, the bottom line is a lot of families in Iran are desperately frightened because their girls are they fear, under attack and certainly scared to go to school. I want to quickly touch on uh, Secretary Blinken's visit with Ethiopian leaders, including Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Indira, what came out of those conversations? And, and we should mention the visit comes after the peace agreement made in November between Ethiopia's federal government and Tigrayan forces that put an end to a three-year civil war. So where do things stand in that conflict and, and what came out of this visit? Yes, absolutely. First, I just wanted to make one more point on Iran before we leave that, which is that these indirect discussions with Iran on the release of American citizens, and it's not just um, Siamak Namazi, there are two other high-profile dual citizens who are still being held. Remember that when the Iran nuclear deal was approved, uh, Iran did at the time release some Americans, including Jason Rezaian, the Washington Post journalist, but Siamak Namazi was left there in jail. What the Iranians want is $7 billion in frozen assets held in South Korea. So far, they haven't come to terms. But I just wanted to make one point that if the Saudi-Iran rapprochement actually takes place, then there could be a chance for the release by summer is what people are saying. As for Ethiopia, you're absolutely right. Blinken has announced $331 million additional dollars in humanitarian aid to Ethiopia, which brings up the U.S. humanitarian assistance commitment to $800 million in this fiscal year, making us the largest single country provider of humanitarian assistance to Ethiopia. Our listeners will remember that Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed won the Nobel Prize for his work in Eritrea getting peace, but then has been criticized outright by the Nobel Committee for the Tigrayan conflict. So it's very interesting that the U.S. is standing by him. Obviously, they're trying to support this peace deal that was signed by Ethiopia and Tigray People's Liberation Front last November. Well, let's move on to the story from Libya, where two and a half tons of uranium are missing. That's according to the United Nations nuclear watchdog. It says the uranium ore itself presents little radiation hazard, but the material still requires safe transport and handling. So again, Nick, we're talking about two and a half tons or 10 drums of missing uranium from a site that isn't under government control. What's the story? Well, the story is that uh, the IAEA does have very extensive checks, very extensive uh, quantity knowledge, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, uh, on on uh, this kind of uranium. Um, and uh, it, it noticed that it was gone. Uh, in the last day, uh, armed forces in eastern Libya say they have been found uh, near the border of Chad. And this is uh, a part of the country that has been 
controlled by Colonel Haftar. He is not the government, not the UN-recognized government, but he it does have a longstanding relationship with U.S. intelligence. And so it's it's been a, a complicated relationship that Washington has had with him. But nonetheless, he has controlled much of this territory. Uh, and so it's believed that the uranium is found and that, you know, this isn't highly enriched uranium. You're not talking about the stuff that actually goes into bombs. This is the stuff that gets refined to become highly enriched uranium. But still, the concerns uh, about Libya are are very high, not only for for this kind of incident, but just in general. The the vacuum that still exists since Gaddafi's death uh, really does perpetuate. And, And while the fighting has gone down from the peak uh, of what it used to be uh, a year or two ago, uh, there is still great concern that, that this is still a country that is a vacuum uh, and where can be the source uh, of quite a bit of instability in the region. Well, I want to give a quick update on Cyclone Freddy, which is waning after battering Malawi and Mozambique. Malawi's president, Lazarus Chikwera, is appealing for international help. Malawi is in a state of disaster. What Cyclone Freddy has done is to pull us back even when we were trying to rebuild because of past tragedies. And I appeal to the international community to please look at us with such favor because we need help. Monitors say at least 300 people were killed and more than 100,000 displaced. Freddie developed near Australia, crossed the Indian Ocean, and has caused destruction in southern Africa since late February. The storm has now mostly dispersed. Well, clashes erupted in Pakistan this week after police tried to arrest former Prime Minister Imran Khan at his home in Lahore. There are currently more than 80 charges against him, ranging from corruption to treason. For more than 18 hours, police fired tear gas at Khan's house as his supporters hurled rocks and bricks at officers. On Friday, the Lahore High Court granted a protective bail to Khan and separately suspended an arrest warrant against him in a corruption case. David, just quickly remind us, who is Imran Khan and why was he ousted from power last year? So Imran Khan was a famous cricketer before he was a famous politician. Uh, He became eventually a fairly fiery anti-American figure and a populist. Um, Politics in Pakistan is a contact sport. Uh, It's rough stuff. And the the backstory is that he appears to have lost the support of the military, which you need uh, to maintain power in uh, uh, Pakistan because the civilian prime ministers are always, to some extent, puppets of the army. And he, he crossed swords with too many powerful generals. Um, Let's not forget that Pakistan is nuclear armed, has an extremely tense relationship with a nuclear armed country next door, India. So this kind of uh, use of the law courts and arrest warrants and gigantic numbers of charges, which we've seen time and again with previous governments, is a very dangerous game. And basically, Imran Khan is testing his popularity against that of the current government and demanding uh, a snap election, calling on his supporters to take the streets and hold protests. Uh, He was shot and wounded at one rally, which he's saying was an attempt uh, to kill him. And so you see, you know, this incredibly fragile quasi-democracy, once again, the violence on the streets uh, being used to try and put pressure on the figures behind the scenes who really decides uh, what happens in Pakistan. Now, Imran Khan denies all charges against him and accuses the government of using his arrest as a tactic to distract him and his PTI party workers from the elections. Khan spoke to Sky News on Wednesday after the siege paused. Now, I'm mentally prepared to go to jail today, but um, what will happen after that, I'm not sure. 
you know, where it goes from there. We will, uh, my legal team is ready. They will go straight to the uh, the high court tomorrow and uh, take up this, uh, this nonsensical case. And so we have the legal team in place. Obviously, we will fight it legally. On Wednesday, Pakistani Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif criticized Khan in televised, televised remarks, saying that the ex-premier, quote, considers himself above the law and he has been defying court orders to avoid arrest, end quote. Indira, as David laid out, this is another chapter in Pakistan's long and turbulent political history. How might the situation resolve? Yeah, I mean, it, it is absolutely true that Pakistan for, you know, 50 years or more has had all sorts of turbulence. Let's not forget that Benazir Bhutto, um, who was prime minister, was assassinated. Her father was um, hanged extrajudicially um, under a dictatorship. Imran Khan has very cleverly this week in the interview you played and also an interview with BBC framed this as a politically motivated um, false charges just to keep him out of the way as an opposition leader. And he said everything he's done, including selling state gifts he received as prime minister, was legal. He's also framed it as this is all an attempt for the government to get him in prison, torture him, or even expose him to where he could be shot and killed. Um, So he has said, look, I'll appear in courts that are safe if you give me uh, you know, police protection, but that he wasn't comfortable going um, to this last, um, you know, high court um, summoning. I think that how's it going to be resolved? I mean, much the same way these things have played out in Pakistan in the past. You're going to see his his really fervent supporters are con- going to continue to clash with police. And I think that unless he gets some deal that he feels is safe passage to courtrooms, Um, you know, we'll see this continuing. He has said that he's ready to travel to Islamabad on Saturday to appear in court tomorrow. So we'll see how that goes. Um, He posed for the cameras with these piles of tear gas shells that he said had been collected from around his house. I think it'll continue to be high drama and, you know, really spurring the emotions of his supporters. And I, you know, I think the government would not be wise to take physical action against him, but we'll see what happens. It depends on how much of a threat they see him. Well, in the final minute we have left, I want to mark that March 20th will mark two decades since the U.S. began its invasion of Iraq in a massive bombing campaign of quote-unquote shock and awe. The invasion was based on what turned out to be faulty claims that Saddam Hussein had secretly stashed weapons of mass destruction. According to the Department of Defense, more than 4,000 U.S. service members and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis were killed. I'd love to hear each of your reflections on, on this anniversary. Indira? We have a big enterprise package, multi-platform, that went out this morning. You can find it on apnews.org. I'm thrilled with it, and it really finds the Iraqi youth generation, surprisingly, um, despite all the pain of the last 20 years, wants to turn the page, sees a new and much more optimistic future. Um, So I think that's a really interesting story Mm -hmm. to tell looking forward rather than back. Nick, what about you? I go back to some of the just strategic failures that still happen to this day because of that decision, whether it's uh, about Syria, or whether it's the failed deterrence of, of Ukraine, whether it's about Afghanistan. But at its core, there are just heartbreaking stories of, of Iraqis, so many who have lost so many lives and a generational uh, challenge of instability the last 15 years. David, you get the last word. 
In China, not a week goes by before uh, Chinese officials talk about West being in decline, America being an evil country that uh, breaks things rather than brings peace. And Iraq is usually the top of their list of, of points of evidence. So I think for them, it's the beginning of the end of the American century. Thanks to our guests. David Rennie is Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. Indira Lakshmanan is a global enterprise editor at the Associated Press. And Nick Schifrin is foreign affairs and defense correspondent at PBS NewsHour. Thanks, everybody. And to round up this week's roundup. On Tuesday, lead guitarist Brian May was knighted by King Charles III at Buckingham Palace in London. Brian May is, of course, the co-founder and lead guitarist of the legendary rock band Queen. He was honored for service to music and charity. May was appointed a commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, that's CBE, in 2005, also for services to music and charity work. He also earned his doctorate in astrophysics from the Imperial College of London in 2007. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at stearnsandfoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at capitalone.com slash sparkcashplus. Terms and conditions apply. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.